Good morning. What a beautiful morning. I was thinking in the first service about this time of year, especially with Easter and so forth, when we're celebrating Jesus' life and Jesus' resurrection, and we'll be able to see outside and see flowers and things turning green and everywhere you look. Um, today's message is about having blind faith, and it's something that we all have. Uh, you know, God has given each every one of us a measure of faith in some degree, and then you know, also we have faith in other things. We have faith like uh, we have faith in our vehicles and the brake systems. If we didn't, we would check them first before we get in the vehicle, right? But anybody here actually do that? No. <clears throat> There's so many things we have faith in. We have faith in chairs before we sit down in them. Um, unless you're like our, our um, soccer chairs, you wouldn't do that. But um, there's so many things we have faith in that we don't even just think about. We just do firsthand. So what we're going to look at today is this blind faith. And before I do that, um, uh, you know, there's, it's in blind faith, you know, we don't necessarily see Jesus, but we see Jesus in things, right? And what I was thinking about this morning was when we see our, our kids pray, um, that's, that, that's one thing that, that touches, touches my heart is hearing, you know, children pray. Uh, and what comes out of their mouths, especially like their own heartfelt prayers and what they're praying for. It, it shows you why Jesus said we have to have faith like a small child and that what they believe in is the basics. You know, it's us adults. The older we get, we confuse things. We throw so many other irons in the fire. We forget about that, that childlike faith of understanding who Jesus is. Also, uh, what else we see Jesus in every day? I was talking, I was talking a minute ago about uh, this time of year, you know, a week ago we was at soccer practice, and I was, or actually about two weeks ago now, and I was looking up at a hill, and I was thinking, man, it'd be nice to have a spotting scope. I could see every little thing on that hill. And this past week while we were there, it's like everything had already turned green, just in a matter of a week. You know, it, it's just amazing how fast things are growing, including my front yard. But what I want to do today is before we get into the message is to set the context. And, and I think that's probably the most important way of understanding the Bible, reading the Bible. Because this, this, this Bible, or a book to a lot of people who are not Christians, is very intimidating, right? I mean, is it still intimidating to some of us today? You know, I couldn't imagine just picking up this Bible and someone saying, turn to Deuteronomy. I'd be like, how do you spell that? If I never even looked at it, I'd be like, whoa, whoa. I remember being a kid, and I was like, well, I just won't do it because I don't want to be that kid that, because there's always some smarter kids in church that knew exactly where to turn to instead of me having to go to the table of context. I just act like I didn't hear the preacher and just not even grab it because it can be that intimidating. One thing we're going to look at today, like I mentioned, is setting the context. and I think this is what helps me the most. I'll share a little bit about it today. Instead of necessarily like turning to like one verse in the Bible and trying to tell somebody all about you know, wrapping one verse around an entire message, I believe you have to back up and maybe even go forward a little bit in the, in the context. Maybe instead of reading one verse, you'd read a couple verses before, or maybe even better, you'd read maybe the entire chapter to understand a little more about what's going on with this one particular verse, and if need be, maybe the entire book of whatever you're in. And it don't stop there, just read the whole Bible. It'll help you even better. But that, that's what, to me, is the most important is we have to set the context because that helps us understand things a little bit better. Uh, today's message, we're really going to look at that. 
And one of the things is, have you ever thought about, you know, just coming off of Easter a few weeks ago, why the Pharisees were so upset with Jesus? Why they absolutely hated the word Jesus or hated Jesus, you know? In our house, we try not to ever use the word hated. I just got a problem with that word. It's so, ugh, it's so strong. It's just so, it's horrible. And it's so easy to say it all the time. And we try to correct our kids. But that's a perfect example is why the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders and Jewish rulers at the time, and the Sadducees and the high priest, or just wrap it all up and say everybody in authority, why they absolutely hated Jesus with a passion. And that's one of the things we're going to look at today before we jump into today's message. But if you do have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 9. And, and this is happening during what they call the Feast of Dedication. And I'm sure that everybody in here could uh, tell me what the Feast of Dedication was, right? I couldn't either. But anyway, to basically sum it up is during what we call in today's time Hanukkah. So we know this would probably have been around the end of November going into December particular time this would also be going right into the death burial and resurrection the following spring so just a little bit of context to where we're at here this is probably eh, five six seven months before Jesus was arrested um, one of the things we also know right now is that, that Jesus things were really heating up for Jesus uh, the, the 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 tide and the mood towards Jesus had had for the Pharisees had gone from being so much say uh, he, he's a problem or a nuisance to we got to get rid of this guy this is what the Pharisees were thinking but the best way to explain this is let's jump back over into chapter 8 and we'll start in verse 52 we'll pay attention to a few things here and this is the Pharisees and at this they explained now we know that you are demon possessed and they're calling Jesus demon possessed Abraham died and so did the prophets Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. What do you, who do you think you are? I'll pause there real quick. In the Jewish faith, there's two names that really stand out in the Jewish faith. The first is Abraham. You know, the father Abraham. So in Jewish faith, a lot of respect, a lot of just other teachings go back to Abraham but also to Moses, which we'll touch on that here in a minute too. Moses is the one that, of course, God spoke to, and they give a lot of precedence to Moses because God actually spoke to him in the first five books of the Bible. So now we'll pick up. So now they're, the Pharisees are getting pretty upset. Now they're talking about Abraham here, and Jesus replied. Now, if Jesus really wants to get in hot trouble, he'll say this. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. Okay, he's getting the crowd fired up now. But I do, not, I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. This Pharisee's talking here. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. How have you seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, where have we heard I am else in the Bible? Talking about with Moses, right? When Moses was commissioned by God through the burning bush to go back into Egypt and deliver his people out of bondage, had been there for 400 years and slavery. 
And, and Moses asked, well, if I'm going to go to this Pharaoh, and who do I got to tell him you are? And what did God say? I am. So now Jesus is saying, you know, I am. Not only is he making a point to say that he was before Abraham, but he's also having a point to quote God alone and what God said his actual name was. The last little part of this, at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself slipping away from the temple grounds. All right, this is setting the, the I'm going to set the context a little bit to what we're going to study today. So now you get a general picture that the Pharisees and, and, and this are no longer just upset with Jesus. They're out to kill him. Now this is, I believe, the second time they tried to stone him. Uh, Jesus went right at him. Jesus had, uh, Jesus had a way with words, I like to say. He, he, didn't, he didn't hide behind what we have, these human emotions. Uh, Jesus is the word. Jesus is the truth. So when Jesus speaks words, he's going to speak the truth. So now we're going to look at chapter 9 and where we're at today with having blind faith. And I'll just sum up a little bit. And I'll start with verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Is that something every one of us has probably thought of before when we see something going on, maybe with a small child or, or, or even something else? We wonder, you know, what happened here? Why, why was, it, why was a, a child born like this? Or in, the, in the Jewish day, back in this particular time, they thought that either, you know, you see in the, the, if you were born... Um, with okay born blind for that matter that it was either you did something from the moment you were born to deserve this or be granted this sin so they bear with me here follow along they either thought that this boy was born blind that he did something from the time he was born to the time he was blind that, I don't know does that make any sense don't to me so they want to blame parents so maybe if, if something was born or someone was born and had an issue, had a problem, a deformity, or so forth. It's a parent's fault. It's a parent's sin. Okay? Pay attention to this. We'll see what Jesus said about this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. This is verse 3, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him that sent, who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of slum. And my Bible is in parentheses, says this means sent. So the man went along and washed and came home seeing. Now this was a measure of faith that this man had. Uh, just imagine, you know, somebody spits on the ground, makes mud, sticks it on your eye, and tells you to go wash. This man had faith that, that Jesus, he did not know who Jesus was at this particular point. We'll find out that later. But he had faith of, of healing. His neighbor and those who had formerly seen him begging asked him, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said he only looks like him. That sounds like a bad excuse. Yeah. And he looks like that guy. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus, 
made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Salam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know. All right, point number one here is the, the confusion of the Pharisees. I'm going to explain to you this, the word miracle here. We use miracle what? We think of something godly, right? Like a healing, something that comes from heaven above. Now, in the, in the Greek, not so much. What the word miracle means in the Greek is still kind of special, but not from God. It could mean an indication, especially ceremonial or supernatural, like a sign, token, or wonder. Um, key word miracle here does not necessarily mean in Greek from God. So they weren't going to deny it. It was a miracle. You'll see in Scripture where they'll even see things happen, but they're not going to give God the glory for it. You know, supernatural. I mean, Jesus himself, they even claimed that he was demon-possessed at one particular time. And what I really want you to do is go ahead and look John chapter 11, verse 48. Now, when I came across this scripture, whenever it was, uh, it, it just really stood out. I, I kind of like history. I used to a whole lot more than I do now. But looking at one of the reasons why, going back to what I said a minute ago, is why the Pharisees just absolutely hated Jesus so much. Right here's going to sum it up in 1148. It's political. That's that dirty word we don't like to use in church. But things back in those days were very political. Jesus' death on the cross uh, had a lot to do, of course, where we're at today and forgiveness of sins, very political death as well. This is one of the Pharisees talking right here in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, seeing, I'm sorry, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Doesn't get much more political than that. In this particular day here, what's going on, the Roman party, the Roman party is, the, is the enforcers of all. They are the, uh, the ones kind of ruling the known land at the time. Um, they took over after uh, they wiped out Alexander the Great, so now it's the Romans are in charge. Now the Romans during tax time would come into Jerusalem and, and collect their tax. Now, how do you think it would go if you didn't have the money to pay them? I mean, we all have imaginations, right? They're going to take something. So they were very uh, forceful in their way and, and greatly feared, even the Pharisees here, they feared the Romans. And, and of course, in the Jewish people back then put so much emphasis in their temple, they knew that if Romans came, they'd just destroy their temple. And that would be destroying everything they stood for. So they knew they had to get rid of Jesus. So why does this play into having to get rid of Jesus? Well, everybody knew that, it, these Pharisees knew that if Jesus kept going on like he had and performing these miracles and these healings and so forth, more people come to Jesus. They would not pay attention to the Pharisees. The name of Jesus would rise up. The Romans would want to know what's going on down there. Who's this Jesus guy? Why can't you guys take care of this problem down there? They're going to cause a riot or a, an up, upbringing or a a commotion. And then if they couldn't take care of it, the Pharisees couldn't, what would happen? The Romans would come in and take over. With that being said, that's so much of the reason why Pharisees hating was for, for political reasons. But you'll be proud of me. I've learned German in the last few weeks. <clears throat> Not really. I've learned one word. And it's a very important word. This is it's how I like to look at the Bible. 
And I don't even know what caused me to look this, this word up. But the word is, I'm going to say it first, then I'll spell it. For staying. For, like if you are staying. Like we don't use the word G in Tennessee on the end of anything. Like staying. So it's just like you always say staying anyway. So it's for staying. But it's actually spelled with a V. It's a German word. It's spelled V-E-R-S-T-E-H-E-N. I know every one of y'all wrote that down to remember it. I hope there's no sociology majors here today because I'm kind of proud of myself for finding this definition and if it's wrong, just don't tell me about it today. But what this is, is the point of trying to relate to someone's feelings with their own perspective or how I can explain a little better would be to put yourself in someone else's shoes. We've always heard that, right? So going back to how I like to kind of read the Bible is I like to put myself in the shoes of what's going on at a particular time. Now, down to some of the critics and so forth of this whole point of view is saying, well, you can't do that. You can't put yourself in someone else's culture. Okay, I understand that I can't, but I can at least try to imagine if I'm there seeing something happen. And what I mean by this is with Jesus, I like to think, I'm sure every one of you probably thought about this at one particular time, but what was going on with Jesus? Would you be one trying to cast stones? Or believing in him you know it's a question we don't like to think about we don't like to answer I'm not asking anybody to you know this is way back before guys the internet photographs radio all this and that I could imagine people just maybe maybe just my opinion 10 20 30 miles away from Jerusalem had no idea maybe what was going on in Jerusalem people hadn't seen pictures of Jesus unless there were some great art artistic people at that particular time which I never heard of anything like that so it takes a, a lot of measure of faith more faith than what we may have to have today could you imagine during Jesus time to accept Jesus and, and watching him how he lived that manner of faith was a lot so with that German word I used which I won't try to say it again because I'm going to end up messing it up but look back to John chapter 6, verse 42. You don't have to turn there. It says, they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Now, with that first staying word I used a minute ago, if you're putting yourself in that perspective, can you kind of see why the Pharisees may have had a little bit of an issue? If, if they knew Jesus' earthly dad was Joseph, they, they seen him born, they seen him running around, as a little kid and so forth, how could he say he came from heaven when we see he come right down the road there on 3rd East Street? Put yourself there. Can you see what I'm saying? Takes the manner and, 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 and a great abundance of faith. Way more faith, I believe, than we have to have today. So, jumping into part two, or point two of today's message, I put down, blame the man. And what I mean by that is, Try to deny this miracle. If, if they could not get Jesus on a political reason, what's another way, the best way I can think of in my mind to uh, downplay a miracle or downplay something special is to lie about it, right? What if the Pharisees could get this blind man, pressure him hard enough, because, you know, they are the big bad Pharisees, pressure him hard enough just to say, okay, I made this up, or... Yeah, that guy, Jesus, really didn't do this. All it would take was like one person, right, to, 
to really hurt the fame and, and what's going on with Jesus at this particular time. You know, it's like that with juries. It could take one out of 12 can say a different opinion and it can, we no longer, doesn't matter what the other 11 people say, right? And that, you know, very political in today's time too, but pressure one person, it can change the outcome of everything. And what we're going to see is that's exactly what the Pharisees try to do. You know, of course, we try to rationalize everything instead of having that kind of faith. We, we're all seers. We need to see to believe things. But would you have believed a miracle if you didn't know this man? Like I said, the next point here is pressure to man. And, but before we grab that, I just want to say one more thing about once blind, but now I see. You know, why are certain stories in the Bible and are certain stories not? Why are certain stories in, say, Matthew that are not in Mark, that are in Mark and not in Luke, that are in John and not in Luke? And not Mark. Well, I think it's really awesome to look at. And we're just staying in the book of John today. If You don't have to turn there. But if I turn over to the last chapter in the book of John. And it says here in the last verse. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down. I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. If everything Jesus has ever done, remember, how long did he preach? We had a three-and-a-half-year ministry. Three, three-and-a-half-year ministry. If every single thing he did, as the book of John here from the Apostle John, saying if everything he did, it could not be, be contained in this world, how did it make it in this 21-chapter book of John? You know, things are in our Bible for reasons. Things are placed where they're at in our Bible for reasons. You know, we know that the, the Matthew perspective, we know that Matthew was also a Levi, his name was Levi, I'm sorry, and he was a tax collector, right? And he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He wrote to more of a, more of a um, Jewish audience at the time. We know that Mark uh, wrote to more of a Gentile audience, particularly towards Rome. And why we put a lot of credit in what Mark has to say is because he, he was an assistant of Apostle Peter. Now we also know that Jesus... Through, through management was, probably, was where we, we understand like delegation. He delegated things with his disciples. Great. Instead of sending all 12 to do a job or sending one to do a job, he busts them up in groups. And that's one of the reasons why like when we, when we read about what Jesus has done, he'll say he had Peter and James and John with him most of the time. That was kind of his group. And, I'm, and the other ones he set out, the other nine in, in different groups, take care of more things, right, to delegate more stuff. So with that being said, if Peter was one of the right-hand men of Jesus Christ, we give a lot of thought and credit to what the book of Mark says. Also, the book of Luke, uh, we give a lot of credit to that because Luke says he's taken all this information that was out there during this particular time, and he's going to compose it into a book. He is a, a doctor. He wants, uh, I think it's just a doctor, some, so, some sort of a doctor or physician, and he's going to play, I'm sorry, He's going to pay very close detail to what he has to say and put it in a book to this guy named Theophilus. So certain things are going to be in there for certain different, for certain different people and also in Luke's way also is for more of a Gentile audience. And also Luke was a traveling companion of Paul. Now this would have came, of course, a few years after Jesus was alive. So of course Mark and Matthew were there with Jesus. There's a reason why this story of of having blind faith and this particular gentleman is in the Bible. And that's what we're going to look at. 
You know, without knowing Jesus, the man was blind. And after meeting him, he can now see. We're going to look over at verse 24 in chapter 9. I know we jumped around a few times, but go back to our main, what we're looking at today in John chapter 9. And get down a little bit to the heart of the matter, starting in verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. So now he's put on trial, so to speak. They're bringing in this guy who was once blind, and now he's on trial. We don't really know if this was a day, two, a week, whatever, maybe a few hours. But now he's on trial for obviously being able to see. Does that make any sense to you? A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth. They said, we know this man is a sinner. Talking about Jesus. And now this is when this, this blind guy becomes one of the greatest preachers of all time. He said, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Jesus answered, I've told you this already. And you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You ready? This is where I think there is humor in the Bible. God does have a sense of humor. And the man tells the Pharisees, do you want to become his disciples too? Now, that hurt. Could you imagine that right there? I'll highlight this in my Bible. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are, his, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. Remember how I mentioned that when we first started? There's Abraham and there's Moses. And they're trying to tell you know, these Pharisees to, to believe in, in, in Jesus and what Jesus is doing, that he is the son of God. They held heavily on Moses and Moses' writings. So let me start over in that verse. Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. Talking about Jesus. Now here we go. You already, the man answered. Now that is remarkable. Very sarcastic. Talking to the Pharisees who had the power to basically do whatever they want to with him. You know, just imagine if you were once blind and now you see. Wouldn't you have a little more faith to go and stand in front of a group of people that... They're calling you a liar because you can now see. Or saying, you only look like that guy who was blind. You're not really him. All right. So the answer, now that, is, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a blind man or a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He could do nothing. And to finish it out to this, they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now, apart from death in the Jewish culture, this was probably the worst form of punishment to be thrown out, to be banned or barred from their synagogues, from, from their group, um, from this class of people um, you know as we're not going to really get in this but if you continue reading you'll see in this that Jesus later visits him he gives his life to the Lord and there you go I like to say that this blind man which you don't know his name this blind man is one of the first greatest preachers you know put yourself in that for staying in that context at the moment could you imagine this, this man going straight in front of the Pharisees we know what they're going to do in six months. They're going to come after Jesus, want him on a cross. 
and talk to them the way he's doing it. You know, to me, that is some humor, but also to me, that's him having the faith to take it straight where it's needed. All right. So we also looked at, at John eleven forty eight that all this was so political. But also I want to look at one more verse here in John again. Flip over to John fifteen five, And one of the reasons I remember this verse so well is when I was younger, I was trying to, um, I was trying to um, memorize this verse. And it was so hard for me. I remember having to read it over and over and over. And I guess that was so I could understand it better. So going on to the tail end of what the blind man said to the Pharisees here, and his last words to him was, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Look at John 5, 15, 5, and what Jesus himself said. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I said in the first service that uh, I'm a prime example of that in my life. You know, I, I didn't need anybody else to mess up my life. I did a well enough job with that at certain times. Um, apart from Jesus, you could do nothing. Um, I'm, I'm a prime example of that. Of course, I thought I could and try this, try that. And, you know, you get knocked down. A lot of you get up, you get knocked down again. You, that's how it goes. But Jesus would say, hey, what, what, what's maybe say that apart from me you can do nothing but on a larger scale heaven on heaven you cannot achieve heaven without Jesus Christ right so Jesus is saying that he is a source of everything of every single thing now I know I've talked quite a bit but in closing the story in the Bible is significant uh, because of several reasons. However, the one that stands out the most is the verse, I was once blind, and now I see. I believe it's in the Bible for a reason. That's tell us that without Christ, we're blind, but with him, we can see the light. You know, I remember my dad saying one time, and I was going through a tough time, can't remember what it was about now, and he said, you're in this tunnel, but at the end of the tunnel, there is a light. And it, he said it wasn't a train. Okay. I'm glad somebody paid attention to that. <clears throat> I thought it was a train. But anyway, now I think back on that, and that, that light is Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can go through now. You know, things that happen to us now are more just physical. You know, with this sinful body, this thing is falling apart. But what's, what, on a greater scale, look what's next. You know, I think we, we, the, the battle has already been won. Is that correct? Hadn't the enemy been defeated? What's there to worry about? Think about like that. That cross. It was all taken care of on that cross. Everything that happened on that cross. What? It's done. Think about like that for a second. What problem are you going through today... It's going to make a hell of a difference about that cross. If you accept Jesus in your heart, you're going to go to somewhere we call heaven where there's no pain, no discomfort, no sickness, no cancer. What else? A place that's perfect. I think the Lord didn't tell us every single thing about heaven because we as human beings would pick it apart. 
You know, somebody would say, well, I'm allergic to gold. Or, I, I really don't like ivory. It reminds me too much of my mother or something, you know. We, we, we find a way to pick it apart. So we can't even really understand what somewhere perfect really is. And that's why Jesus died on the cross for us. You know, like I said, we're once blind and now you can see. That's us before knowing Christ. We're blind. You're blind as blind can be. When you get to know Christ, guess what? There's a light. I can't even say it without trying to smile a little bit. You know, the stuff we go through here is nothing. Nothing. I'm going to, Chris is not even going to have to tell me today to give him a taste. I'm going to go ahead and do it. Um, I was was thinking in the first service, you know, what kind of imitation should we have today? And all all that really come to my mind, and all that still comes to my mind is this. This right here. My aunt, she's been dead for many, many, many years, died of uh, lung cancer, and she's just in really bad shape. Didn't have anything. She lived with my grandmother. But when she got really old, she gave her Bible to my mother. And that was the one gift, the gift of everything that she could give my mother. She didn't have any money to give her. She didn't have any, I can see paintings or anything. Gave her her Bible. And I remember my mom just bawled and cried over that. That's how cherished we should look at the Word of God. It's not this physical Bible. It's the Word of God. That's everything. I look at three things that we have to do as Christians. Number one, you've already got today, and those online, you're attending. Another thing is praying, which we have to do. Another thing right here, guys, is reading the Word of God. You have to read the Word of God. The Word of God is the truth. Jesus is the truth. If you want to know about it, you read the Word of God. This has to be a staple in our homes. It has to be. No one can argue that it, that, it's, it, that it shouldn't be or it's outdated. This world has changed so much. I mean, we don't even talk about how, long the, how much the world's changed since Jesus' time 2,000 years ago. We can just talk about the last probably six months to a year how much the world changes. You go back five years, ten years, how much has the world changed? You go back generations, how the world changed. It's a good conversation people like to have. Well, back when I was a kid this, when I was a kid that. But you know what has never changed? And it's never going to change. We change. People change. This church will change. They'll have to be updated at some particular time. But this never will, will it? That's the only thing in this world that has never changed is the Word of God. So why not pick it up? Pick it up. You should have this open in your house. You know, I'm not, I'm not a perfect man to stand in front of you and saying, I read the Bible every day with my kids. But it, it tears my heart when I even say that I don't. But I should. You know, if you were given one extra day on this earth, what would you do different today? Would you do anything different, say, if you knew you had a week before Jesus calling you home? Would you do anything different this coming week? Don't answer that. I know I would. That makes me feel guilty even saying I would do something different this week. I would do more for the Lord this week if I knew I only had one week to go. You know, we all have family. We all have friends. We have coworkers. We have neighbors. There's somebody that we can tell about Jesus Christ.
And just to be blunt, you're not guaranteed anything. There's one thing that all Christians and non-Christians have in common. One thing that every one of us and every non-Christian and Christian will stand in front of Jesus Christ one day. I'm shaking. You have to answer a question. You want to wait till next week? Going through a tough time. Let me get this stuff done this week. Be a busy week at work. Let me think about next week. Let me think about next month. You know, as kids saying, well, maybe by the time I get through my 20s or, you know, let me get through this and then I'll start thinking about that, that, that church thing down the road where Chris sings. I'm too busy right now. If you're not guaranteed tomorrow, you have to make a decision because one day in standing in front of Jesus Christ, you're either going to hear one of two different things. You'll hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Or you could hear, I cast you away, I never knew you. Putting it out there blunt today. Every one of us wants to stand in front of him. I can't wait to see him. Man, for what he did for me, I don't know why he did it. Sure didn't deserve it. Man, I'm so happy for it. So happy for it. A life in heaven. I'll get to see my mother again. I can't wait. Can't wait to see my grandpa that served in World War II and mother grandpa that served in World War One and, and my grandmother, I never had a chance to really talk to her about what it was like in the thirties and forties. You know, what it was like having a husband in World War II and you're back home. So many questions. I'll tell you what, when I get there, man, I'm gonna I'm going to drive them crazy with questions. That's just a joke. But I can't wait to be there. Let today be that day. If you have a question, if you're wondering about your faith, if you can't answer, yes, I'm a Christian, if I die today and I'm going to heaven, or if you, if you can't answer that question today, let today be the day that we find out. Not tomorrow. There's plenty of people here in this great, amazing, awesome church here to talk to about it. Myself, anybody here, if you've got questions about your faith, let today be the day that it's answered for you, not tomorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the day you've given us, Lord, and we just thank you for your word. And Father God, just, just holding your word, seeing your word, Lord, is it's the most powerful sword we have for all the world and for evil. Lord, your word just cuts through the truth. Your word is the truth. Lord, your word is timeless. Lord, may your word be a staple in all of our homes, Father, going forward. Lord, we thank you for this beautiful day, for this congregation, for your word, Father, for each other. I pray that you go before us this week, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.